Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we attempt to get out of the way and let the Bible speak, revealing the person and presence of King Jesus today. So we are moving through the book of Acts, and I feel a little bit like I'm going to try to hug an elephant arms around something kind of big. I'm going to open some things up. We're, we're moving into um, Acts chapter 3, and we're going to do like 10 verses, not a ton, um, but we're going to take a, a very um, different look at Peter um, and John. So those are two of the disciples, as you may know, um, and how they heal a man who was born lame or uh, without the use of his legs is what it, it looks like. So um, I'm going to share a story with you. I've got a little diagram we're going to put up there. We're going to see if we can get our arms sort of around something that I think is very powerful um, here. So as we launch into this um, passage, there's like three levels that you could um, sort of read this passage or look at this passage. And that's true of a lot of scripture, right? That's why the word is living and active. Um, But the first level that you could look at this passage is, this is the launch of the New Testament church. And what's wild is that God chose to um, come to earth as a son in an impoverished nation that is um, conquered by another nation. Rome is ruling Judea, right? Rome is ruling Israel. And uh, he chooses a group of teenage um, fishermen and tax collectors, two fishermen that we're going to read about this morning. Um, and he, so, so as he launches or as he plants this New Testament church, so this is the first real um, launch of the New Testament church. Peter is really the first pastor in this New Testament church. We did that last week. But what's interesting is if you looked at all the church metric um, or church planting metrics, um, that people say, how, give you instructions today on how you plant a church. Do you think this meets any of them? I mean, you know, they raised money for like six months, right? They had this amazing strategic plan. The leadership was remarkable. They attended leadership seminars again and again and again, right? Yeah, they all had collegiate level degrees. Some of them had doc. I'm kidding. Thanks. Okay, dad joke. Um, but what I, wanna, what I want you to see is there is something that most glorifies God when he takes something that is nothing. So if you read Genesis 1-1, and if we read it in Latin, there's this idea that emerges, and it's out of nothing God spoke and created something. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so what's amazing about these first few chapters of Acts is it's almost like there was creation at the beginning, Genesis 1-1, and this is a recreation of the newness of the church in Christ Jesus. And there's something that glorifies God most, most wonderfully when he takes nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing and produces something that is earth-changing or paradigm-shifting or radically cataclysmic that would ultimately shift the entire known world. You follow me? So he takes someone like Peter and someone like John. So flip over to Acts 3, and let's uh, sort of dig into this. But, but as we dig into it, okay, so we could read it at, a, at this, at this um, initial level that God is taking absolute, the, the, the foolish things, the simple things of the world to confound the wise. Okay, God is most glorified in that. All right, that's one level we could read it. Another level that we can read this passage is there is a lame man who doesn't have the use of his legs, and he's about to be healed. We could focus on his um, literal healing. Does God still heal today? 
Yes. But, ooh, but, here we go. Uh, the third thing that we could actually dig into is the healing of the shame or the rejection that is going on in this man's heart. Let me, let me open something, but as we sort of soldier into this, and if you, if you know me, you know I'm going to land on this last passage. I think when, when people are sick, do we have a biblical mandate to pray for healing? Yes. Is God always going to heal? No. Will he always use the ailment for our good and his ultimate glory? And he will always use whatever pain, whatever discomfort, whatever difficulty to draw you into deeper, more significant, intimate relationship with him and people if you let him, right? Okay, so let's, let's just start reading here because I don't think God's ultimate goal as we move into this is that you or I are out of pain or that we're just physically healed. I think he wants that. Or that we're just restored. I think what he wants, the heart of God, as I read Genesis to Revelation, including this passage, is that we would become progressively more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Our, our relationship with him would be vibrant, alive, and connected. And then our relationship with humans would be deep, authentic, and restored. Does this make sense? That is the essence of the heart of God. And there's times where he heals physically. But I think what is more fascinating, what I'm going to focus on here in this moment, is the healing of this man's um, sort of inner heart shame, um, um, his inner journey. Okay? Now, I want you to think of something. Um, can Peter, who we're about to read about, can he lead this man who doesn't have the use of his legs, can he lead this man somewhere he hasn't gone? Okay, so spiritually, can Peter lead this man somewhere he hasn't gone? I'm always asking these hard questions. I'm making you think, right? Dig deep. Okay, so uh, take it out of, out of Peter in this. Um, when Michael gets up here to preach and I get up here to share, can I guide you somewhere or lead you somewhere I haven't been? No. So what I want you to begin to see here is Peter is going to extend something to this broken man who's broken literally in his legs. He's going to extend something to this man that he has already received. You know when you get on an airline um, and you, you're getting ready to take a, a flight and the stewardess has come out uh, or the stewards come out and they say, um, in the event of an emergency, this little oxygen mask is going to fall down. And they say, put it on your kids first. What do they say? Put it on yourself first. Okay, so this is kind of the idea is that you're called, um, Peter is called to first taste and see of God's goodness, his kindness, his redemption. His own shame is healed. He is restored as a man. He is restored as a leader. He is called to be an apostle and a pastor. And then out of where he is now walking, he extends this same healing to the man that's sitting at this gate to the temple. Does that make sense? All right, so let's, let's dig in. Um, and Father, I pray that as we dig in, that you would allow us to see this full picture and the full ramifications of what we're reading. Okay, Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer. Okay, so they're heading to the temple. Remember, they are still, they're transitioning from Old Testament Judaism to New Testament Christianity. So at times of prayer, what are they still doing? They're still going to the temple. In fact, the New Testament believers are still gathering in the temple. They're also gathering in homes. We looked at that last week. Okay, so they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. 
Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. That's the name of the gate. Um, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. What do you feel for the man? Compassion? Somebody said pity? Kindness? Tenderness? Okay. Um, So just real quickly, I think the easiest, most simple way to understand this is throughout all of the old world, ancient world, um, people who were broken or destitute or disabled were always carried to not just the the temple in Jerusalem, the the Judaism temple, but all temples everywhere. So uh, typically, and even in Judaism, um, they would carry a a person who was broken to the temple and they would set them there. And this was kind of like the way... um, God set up a system of welfare for people to be taken care of that, that, that were in lack. Does that make sense? So um, a wealthy Jewish man or woman walks by, and there's, there would be a crowd of people who were broken or lame or disabled or whatever words you're going to put on it. And as they're walking by, they would take and give. Um, they're also giving at the temple, but they're going to actually give to the people they're walking by. Now, just imagine with me, on an average day in Jerusalem, how many people who were broken or destitute or hurting physically might be sitting at one of the temple gates? Could there have been five? Could there have been 55? Could there have been several hundred? Yes. Okay, so this is what I'm, I'm widening your, our, our sort of um, spectrum to. Does God heal? Absolutely. Do we have a God-given responsibility to pray for healing when we don't have it in our lives? Yes. We also have a God-given responsibility to leave that in God's sovereign hands. Okay? Now, but Peter and John are moving um, to this temple. There's a man who was lame from birth. This is like his occupation, begging in some ways. So he's carried and he's set next to this um, gate. He's put there every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter. Now, I'm fascinated by this because what I don't understand is, and it had to be the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but, but why was it this man that they spoke to and not everybody else? Okay. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for what? Money. Okay. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, what did Peter say in your Bible? Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. So Peter says, look at me in the eyes. I want, you to, I want you to pause this for just a minute, and we're going to turn back to Luke 22. Because I think one of the most powerful moments in Peter's journey, where he is set free from his own shame, his own failure, happens in a similar way. All right, Luke 22. If you're in Acts, it would be um, John, and then I can't do it backwards. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So just John and then Luke. So it's the very end of Luke. Thank you. I'm smarter than I look. All right, Luke 22. We're going to start reading in verse 59. Now, Jesus is being crucified. He's not yet on the cross, but he's being tried. Um, The the, uh, very sort of next verses, the guards are mocking Jesus. They're spitting on Jesus. They're hitting Jesus in the face. So Jesus, the way I would think of this is Jesus is actively being crucified in this moment. Okay? You follow me? 
All right, so let's pick up 59. About an hour later, another asserted, so this is um, a little slave girl probably, um, certainly this fellow, Peter, uh, was with him, Jesus, for he is a Galilean. So there's someone saying, hey, Peter, you were with Jesus. And what's Peter say? Peter replied. And you get this idea that Peter's exasperated, frustrated, angry, defensive, anxious, who knows. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, what happened? Rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at. Uh, Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Okay. So, Jesus is being actively moved towards being crucified on the cross. He's being beaten. He's being hit. He's being spit upon. He's being mocked. He's being made fun of. Um, He's being even physically abused and tortured. Okay, so all this is underway. And Peter now, who uh, Jesus told Peter, you're going to disown me three times. And Peter was absolutely adamant and said... No, I won't. Um, and so Peter disowns him once, Peter disowns him twice, and then Peter disowns him three times. And there's this cataclysmic moment in Peter's life where I can, I can only imagine, because I'm, I'm, I know this Jesus, my Jesus, when I am caught in my own sin or my own failure, his eyes find me. So Peter disowns Jesus for the third time, and in this moment, the Lord Jesus, who I imagine over here somewhere, turns and looks straight at Peter. Now, if you don't know the God of the Bible very well, you might assume, and if you're laboring under things like shame or guilt or performance or the sickness of religion, you may assume that what Jesus had in his eyes was, you sorry rascal, or I am angry at you. Or remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here, and I talked about the way I feel about shame. Remember the Darth Vader quote where he gets his, the admiral who failed, and he goes, Admiral, you've failed me for the last time. Remember? And the admiral goes, eh. That's the way I feel when I'm, I'm shamed. So, so I can only imagine in this moment, Peter is still not fully understanding the God of the Bible. He's not fully understanding who Jesus is. He's caught in this moment of great sin. He denies Christ, which if you really boil everything down, I think that's what sin is. We go, forget your way, God, I'm doing it my way. Forget your path, God, I'm doing it my way. It's rebellion in the human heart that manifests itself in a thousand different ways. Okay, that's sin. That's that's what it is. It's a sickness of the heart that says, I'm going my way, not your way. So Peter is caught in this moment where he sins, um, and it betrays the reality that who's Lord of Peter's life? Peter. Jesus isn't Lord of his life, because if Jesus was Lord of his life, what would he have said in that moment? Yeah, I am. And he probably would have gone over and taken up his place right next to Jesus. So Peter is caught in shame. He's caught in um, his own guilt. He's caught in, and he has this like trauma response. If we go back to it, we could read it. Um, Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, let me tell you what I believe is happening in Jesus' eyes, because Peter's about to have the same thing in his eyes, and we're about to read it. Okay? So I believe what was in the Lord Jesus' eyes, Peter's here, he's standing around this charcoal fire, he's denying him multiple times, third time he denies him, then Jesus is over here, and he turns and he looks at Peter. And I believe what is in Jesus' eyes is grace, 
compassion, understanding, kindness, gentleness. Jesus is actively in that very moment being crucified for who? And Peter. Jesus is actively laying everything down to cover Peter's shame. If we went back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they sinned, and then they covered themselves, they covered their shame, and then Jesus, or God showed up in the garden in the cool of the day, and he killed an animal, and he made animal skins. He shed blood, and he covered their shame. In this same moment, what is happening is the Lord Jesus is actually um, inviting Peter into, past his shame, past his guilt, past his failure, into the wholeness that Peter would actually surrender his life or exchange his broken life for the life of Christ in him and through him. And I think what's happening in the eyes of the Lord Jesus is this kindness, is this compassion, is this love, is this graciousness. Now, is there also conviction? Absolutely. But there is a beckoning to find the life of Christ in and through that. So let's, let's define that for just a minute. Um, so I would say that God convicts us, Satan condemns us. Satan, biblically, if you're not used to that word, is just the enemy of our soul, okay? He's a, he's a, um, a real uh, spiritual being, fallen angel, enemy of our soul. God convicts us, Satan condemns us. God shows us, Satan shames us. You follow me? Um, so conviction is like the gentle, steady pressure of the Holy Spirit of God to correct us. And conviction actually welcomes us to find freedom um, through repentance. Now, the church has often used this word repentance to like beat people over the head and get them to perform a certain way. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of current Christian leaders and speakers don't want to use that word, but it's a very biblical word. And if you can begin to have a paradigm shift and see the idea of conviction and even repentance as restoration of your relationship with God and restoration of your relationships with each other, then it becomes this like powerful Jesus-infused word. Make sense? Okay, so let me kind of keep wrestling and digging here. Um, when... Let me try to open something up. I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to see if we can, we can get our arms all the way around this. Um, Spencer, would you put up um, my little diagram? Okay. So there's this um, thing that I have found to be true in my life. I think it's operating in Peter's life. And Peter is about to invite this man not only into physical health and wholeness, which God does, but he's also inviting him, more importantly, into spiritual um, and emotional and literal health and wholeness. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go over here. So um, this is, uh, I have a couple different authors call it something like this. This is kind of my words and my vernacular around some ideas that have impacted me very greatly. So this, this is called the shame triad. Okay? No. Remember, um, shame is a very common human emotion. I do not believe shame is born in the heart of God. Shame is born in the heart of the enemy. You guys might not be able to see that, so we'll do our best. Um, so here's what happens is in this shame triad, we have self-righteousness. So Peter, when he's in this moment of denying Christ, is his righteousness of himself or of God? His self. Okay, so he has self-righteousness. Now, he denies Jesus, right? 
Okay, And then Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, while Peter is actively doing it, like it's unbelievable, the eyes of Jesus find Peter. And what's Peter feel? Shame. Yep, shame. Now, is Jesus shaming Peter? Very important. No. He is convicting Peter. Now, I imagine what Peter's feeling, because it's what Michael feels, you've failed me for the last time. (laughs) Jesus has discovered my sin. And you're full of? Okay, guilt and shame. You're overwhelmed by it. So you sit over here in guilt. And guilt then drives you um, into sort of self-reproach and you begin to reform yourself and change yourself. And I'm going to do better next time. And I'm going to work harder and I'm going to make it happen. And I'm going to jump deeper into religion and I'm going to perform a little bit better and I'm going to please God. And I'm not going to be God's son or God's daughter. I'm going to be like God's employee. And as I do that, I'm going to engage in higher performance, and when I'm engaging in higher performance, I am also self-righteous, okay? So I am not appropriating and carrying the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I'm actually walking in my own self-righteousness. Okay, so Peter, in this moment, weren't you with him? You're a Galilean too. No, I wasn't. He's still living out of self-righteousness. The eyes of Jesus turn over here. Look at Peter. And Jesus is not shaming him. He's not condemning him. He's not beating him up. He's not angry with him. He is actually calling him to lay down his sin, his failure, find forgiveness and the covering for his shame. And he's welcoming into restored relationship. Already Jesus is welcoming Peter into restored relationship with Jesus um, and with each other. That's exactly right. Okay, so let's keep going. So uh, if, if God convicts and Satan condemns, Satan wants you living in broken relationship with God. Does Satan care if you're religious? In fact, religion actually serves to sever your relationship with God. Some of you are like, well, isn't Christianity a religion? Not really. It's a relationship, okay? We're engaging in a deep, significant, vibrant relationship with the King, King Jesus, Creator God, and with people. So when, in this moment, when Peter looks up, he's denied him for the third time, the eyes of Jesus find him, Peter faces a choice, okay? He is in this moment where he faces a choice, and he can either run away from God, or he can run to Jesus. You follow me? The only way I can even think of this is like, um, are some of y'all baseball fans? Who played baseball? A few baseball players? Baseball fans? Come on, let me see. All right, there's something in Major League Baseball, that, or all baseball really, but it's called a pickle or a um, rundown. Thank you. I couldn't find it on my notes. I'm so good. I was a terrible baseball player. I mean, terrible. They about kicked me off the team. Um, that's true. No exaggeration. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, it's called a pickle or a rundown, but what happens is you have a runner who's caught between two bases and the other team has a, has the ball over here and they've got to tag the player out. They can't just tag the base. And so they're tossing the ball back and forth. So in this moment, Peter has just denied Christ. No, I don't know him. The eyes of Jesus find him and Peter's caught in this pickle. Do I run away from God and hide in my shame? Do I run to God and acknowledge it and find forgiveness, grace, restoration? But most of us, because shame so takes hold, what do we do? What does Peter do? Let's go back. I'm going to read it right out of the scriptures. 
Peter remembered what the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He ran away and got alone. So we're like 60 days, 50 days. I I don't know, 55 or 60 days, maybe more from that exact encounter. And what I would have to take you through the scriptures, but what I am convinced happened is that Jesus met with Peter alone. Jesus met with Peter after his resurrection multiple times, revealed himself to him. And Peter begins to find freedom from this shame triad. So God actually comes to break the power of this shame triad in your life. Okay, religion is a human's attempt to clean themselves up, work themselves up into favor with God or a God so that they can make their way into paradise. Okay, Christianity in its essence is actually acknowledging that in and of yourself, you are an absolute abject failure and wreck. You are totally bankrupt. You have nothing to give. And it's instead of running away, it's turning towards Jesus and running to him in your shame, in your disgrace, in your sin and what you've been caught in and finding then in the arms of Jesus, forgiveness and freedom and restoration and, and this wonderful love and kindness and grace where he clothes you with that that the, the, the cloak of the son who is, you know, who's been gone. This is the, the idea of the prodigal son who's returning home. So you have this idea that Jesus or God is always welcoming every single one of us to come through our shame, through our sin, through our failure and find health, wholeness, life, liberty, freedom, and break out of this shame triad. Amen. Come on. Does Satan want you to live here? Absolutely. Does God want you to live there? Absolutely not. And he's always calling us sort of out of that place into great freedom. Now, uh, when you run to God, I mean, I always actually wondered what would have happened if Peter, when he's caught in this, if he would have turned towards Jesus and immediately began to repent. And I think he did. I just think it took him some weeks. So I think Peter like went over here. This is totally Michael. It's not in the Bible. But I think Peter went over here and was like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm a loser. I just, I failed Jesus. Like Jesus is going to hate me. He can never use me. And you know how I know that? Do you know how I know that's what Peter did? Because I've done that. I still do that once in a while. Oh, no, our pastor doesn't do that. Yeah, he does. I still have a shame response. Okay, let me go back into Acts here, and let's see if we can connect some dots and learn some things that could perhaps change the way we interact. Back to Acts chapter 3, verse 3. When he saw Peter and John, so the man who had no use of his legs, about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And what did Peter say? Come on, come on, come on. What did Peter say? Look at us. Now, who looked at him? In his moment of great shame and great failure and great brokenness, and Peter was lame in spirit. Peter was broken in heart. Peter was um, full of self-righteousness. Peter was full of insecurity. Peter was full of arrogance at this moment. And all of a sudden, his sin is before him. And Jesus says, look at me. 
So Peter, what I'm actually proposing to you, has put his oxygen mask on. He has found life. He has found forgiveness. He has found restoration. And now he's actually going to extend it to this man, not only in the form of literal healing of his legs, because the ankles and feet and knees are going to become strong, but he's actually offering freedom and a, a crushing or breaking of this shame triad, because at this point in time in Israel, what is a person who has no use of their legs? They're rejected. They're outcast. Can they provide for their family? No. They're a dead weight on society. I mean, we, we could just go right down the list. So basically, do you remember that passage? And we'd have to look it up. I don't think I put it in my notes. But the passage where um, the disciples found someone who was sick. He might have been born blind. I can't remember. But um, they said to Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Remember that? So there's this presumption, and it's not just in Israel at this time. It's the entire ancient world. But there's this assumption or presumption that if bad things are happening in your life, then God's against you and you've displeased the gods. Okay? So there is this, like when this guy gets brought out and he's sat at the temple, beautiful, and he's sitting there asking for money so that he can support whether he has a family or kids or whatever. He's asking for money to support them. He is also full of shame. And there's this assumption or presumption of every person who walks in that temple gates and they look at this man, that this man must have done something to deserve where he is. You failed me for the last time. Shame. Can't do anything about it. He's just sitting in his shame. He's sitting in his brokenness. Now, comes along Peter. When he and uh, Saul, the man who had um, legs that didn't work, saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. And the reason I think that is so powerful is because Peter is not just inviting him in. I don't even think Peter knew at this moment that God was going to heal him. I think he was going to pray for it. But he's like, I don't know. But I know that I can also invite him into freedom from his shame. Freedom from his guilt. Freedom from what he's laboring under. Because Peter is now beginning to taste of the life of Christ Jesus. He's just preached a sermon. 3,000 people came to Christ. He's leading the New Testament church. He's a new man. He's a new creation. He's feeling the hope of God and the life of God and the light of God. And he's preaching out of that hope and life and light. And he's inviting people, other people around to find that same life and freedom and hope in his Jesus. Verse 6, then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. I love that God launched the church out of lack. Like get that, like get that and let it sink in. God did not launch the New Testament church. He didn't launch his church out of abundance. He didn't launch it out of plenty. He didn't launch it out of massive amounts of money or strategic planning. He launched it out of absolutely nothing so that no one, no human agent could get any credit other than King Jesus. Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He invokes the name of Jesus, the name above all names, King Jesus. Why I'm always saying King Jesus, because there's like nothing in our language that like shatters through all the names and whatever we have. But it's like King Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, just even that he said Jesus Christ of Nazareth tells me something. Because technically Jesus was born where? Bethlehem. He could have said Jesus Christ of 
Bethlehem, and that would fulfill better the Old Testament you know, um, uh, prophecies. But he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a shamed place. It was a rejected place. It was a disliked place. And so he even says, what he is saying is, this is the king. This is the God that breaks the human element of shame and rejection. And it covers your nakedness. It covers your brokenness. And he is the God that will look you in the eyes and call you into life and call you into freedom and call you into joy and call you into hope so that you can experience fullness of deep, progressively, intimately relationship with God and with people. It's the essence of what he's saying here. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the name above all names, walk. Walk literally. Walk in your heart. Walk into freedom. Walk out of this shame triad. Walk out of your own guilt. Walk out of your own self-condemnation and experience the life and the forgiveness of Jesus. And then I love this. Peter, full of faith, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. I wonder what's happening inside. So all these, there's sick people probably all around. And Peter and John are focused on one. And this sick man who is all of a sudden, his, his feet and his ankles are being physically healed. He's standing up. But also what is happening is Peter, who has been freed of his own shame and his own guilt and his own failure, is inviting this person, this man, into life eternal inside. And he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Verse 8, he jumped to his feet. I love that jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Is that a commotion? It's a huge commotion. I mean, everybody in the temple courts, they, they would have been like um, uh, reciting the Psalms and different things. And, and they have this like little cadence that, that, that um, like even Hasidic Jews now, if you go to the Western Wall, they'll have this little cadence that they do because they're reciting um, the Old Testament Psalms. And there's a, uh, but everybody is sober. Everybody is like serious. This is the sovereign, holy God. And all of a sudden, this guy has been made well, literally. His feet and ankles have become strong. He's being set free of his own shame, his own guilt, his public embarrassment. And all of a sudden, he's like dancing and yelling and praising God and everybody's like what happened he went with them into the temple courts walking and jumping and praising God when all the people saw him walking and praising God they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called beautiful and they were filled with wonder and amazement as what uh, as to what had happened to him I'm going to read verse 11, and we'll stop there. While the man held on to Peter and John, so he is, um, his, his feet, um, his, his ankles, and his knees are now well, but what's he doing? He's holding on to them. Why? He's probably like a newborn calf. He's never walked on these things, but then he lets go, and he's, he's jumping, and he's praising God, and he's shouting, and then he comes back, and I can only imagine that in those moments, it's like, but what if it comes back? But what if my shame comes back? But what if my sickness comes back? But what if what I've labored under comes back? But what if God takes it from me? But what if I have to live under that shame and guilt and rejection again and again? And I have to get up and I have to face this, the pain of this every day. So he runs back to Peter and holds on to him. And then Peter's about to preach a message because a huge group gathers. So... Let's, let's define a couple things. Let's talk about a couple things, and we'll, we'll see if we can um, sort of pull this together. 
when God convicts us, it is an invitation into the life of Christ. When Peter said, look at me, he's inviting the man into the life of Christ. It is an invitation into a deeper abiding relationship with Jesus um, through repentance. It's an invitation to further abandon what Paul in the New Testament would call your sarks, your flesh. Sarks is Greek. It's your, if we use like modern vernacular, it'd be uh, abandoning your false self or finding your new self in Jesus. Who, you, who he is as a new creation. So that's what Peter's inviting him into. He's saying, it even when he says, look at me, you are not your sin. You are not your shame. You are not your failure. Um, you're responsible for it, but it is not you. And you can find the life of Christ. Um, you can find health, healing, and wholeness, both literally, but internally. Um, and, you can, and it's an invitation into deeper relationship. So let me, let me define this, and then uh, let me define uh, repentance for just a minute. Um, most people, most of us in the church, we think repentance is like doing this big old cannonball back into the shame triad. I'm going to work harder tomorrow. I'm not going to fall again. I'm going to do better, right? But what the Bible, uh, and even what's being indicated here, what's happening with Jesus when he finds the eyes of Peter, repentance um, is, is actually, um, it's not defining sin by merely um, actions, but rather as an attitude of the heart. So if we define sin merely as actions, so I could get up here and I could talk about all these different actions and things, and you guys would be pushed back into this little shame triad, this little shame dance or shame storm. Um, but rather, repentance is agreeing with God on the depravity of your own heart and life and exchanging your broken, sinful heart for the whole righteous heart of the Lord Jesus in your life. Go back to the pickle that Peter's caught in, right? <clears throat> Do I run towards Jesus? Do I run away from Jesus? It, th th that is the um, repentance is acknowledging and exchanging your brokenness for the life of Christ. So when the church historically, I'm going to say some stuff and I don't mean to be offensive, but there's been times over the capital C church, not a particular church, but it said things like don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, don't watch R-rated movies, don't get a tattoo, don't wear ripped jeans, you know, don't hang out with people who do. They're driving people into what? Shame triad. I'm not advocating for any one of those things. My pastor says we should all get tattooed. No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is if you limit relationship with God to managing external behaviors and you fail to acknowledge the deeper significant things that he wants to do in your heart, you're going to miss the person and presence of Jesus. <clears throat> okay. I want to give you some practical takeaways, but before I do, I want to tell you three things that have just happened to me. I'm not going to go into great detail. Um, three situations that happened here at church. One situation, uh, um, there was a team at church that got left out of our church-wide, um, uh, what was that thing, ministry fair. Some of you were here for that, and I forgot. Like, it was a legitimate fumble, a fail, legitimate fail on my part. And um, I didn't know it for a number of months. Um, and someone finally came and told me, and guess what I felt? I failed! And I'm caught then in this. Do I run and hide? Or do I run to Jesus? I'm getting better, and I'm getting faster at going, I'm going to go to Jesus. 
But I still have this tendency, and I still find myself going, you follow me? Another situation. Um, there was a, a, a group, and um, I had uh, made a commitment to something, and I never filled, fulfilled the commitment. And they came, and they said, well, you've never fulfilled your commitment. In the moment, what did I feel? You've failed me. Caught in the pickle, right? Jesus, the eyes of Jesus are looking at me. I know they're right. Oof. Do I run away? Do I run too? I just paused in this instant. I, also in the last instance, I just went, I made a mistake. Will you forgive me? You're right. Because I don't have to go back to this. I can live with new legs. And I can live with a new heart in this. Another situation. There's a couple that was hurt by something I did and, and also something I didn't do. And they came and sat with me and told me, guess what I felt? I still have it. I'd, lo I'd love to tell you that I'm, I think I just turned 42. I'd love to tell you that like, I'm totally free of this. But I don't think any of us, until we cross the threshold into eternity, I don't think we're ever fully free of this. It, it, it is a, it's the principle of remaining sin within us. And when the eyes of Jesus find us and we're caught in something or we've done something or we failed to do something, we're faced with this pickle, we're faced with this rundown, we're faced with this choice, we're faced with, we're lame sitting at the temple and someone is extending their hand saying, I don't have silver and gold, but what I have, freedom from shame, freedom and wholeness inside and freedom to your physical body, I give to you in the name of Jesus. We have this choice. Are we going to run and hide or are we going to run to So let me give you a couple of takeaways. I believe that what Jesus did when he looked at Peter is he held Peter's space. He held, um, he invited Peter into wholeness and life. I believe that when the man is sitting with the broken legs or the, the, the um, paralyzed legs at the temple gate and Peter walked by and said I don't have silver and gold but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus I believe that in that moment Peter held this man's space and here's what I mean here's what I mean by that you can as a as a person who is in Jesus is Jesus in you are you in Jesus okay you can begin to hold someone's space if Josh comes to me he goes, Michael, I'm hurt because I don't have to agree with Josh. I don't have to disagree with Josh, but I can empower Josh by listening, by empathetically understanding, by acknowledging his feelings. Do you hear me? It's this moment where you're welcoming him because he's been courageous. He's come to me with something. You're welcoming him to not go back to this. And you're illustrating your own life and your own freedom and your own health because you are um, welcoming them into wholeness. Now go back to the two or three situations I just gave. If a couple comes to me or a person comes to me, you've hurt me, Michael. And I go, and I run and hide. What am I pushing them and me back into? Like you got to get this. You as a believer, 
If you're in Jesus, and Jesus is in you, with every interaction in your marriage, with your kids, with your friends, with your roommates, with your singleness, with your parents, with your brothers and sisters, no matter what age you are, with every interaction, you are either inviting people into the life of Christ to begin to take responsibility for their failure and shortcoming, but to find freedom and life and breaking that shame triad of experiencing the redemption of God, or you're going to um, inadvertently push them into the shame triad, because that's where you're living. St. Francis of Assisi one time said, Oh Lord, help me uh, seek to understand before demanding that I be understood. Hold someone's space. Hold their space and invite them to experience the wealth of Jesus. Not silver and gold. The wealth of freedom from shame. Resist your own admiral response uh, by Admiral Darth Vader. You've failed me for the last time. You know, one of the things that I'm learning in my life, we're even learning in our marriage, is not to go into defensiveness, not to go into anxiety, not to go into like, I'm going to accuse and defend mode. The moment you do that, what happens to relationship? Severed. What happens to relationship with God? Severed. What happens to relationship between Abby and I? Severed. Like holding someone's space, being um, okay in your own skin, in your own um, self-esteem enough to walk and help someone into health is where the power of the Holy Spirit takes effect. Peter's shame triad has been broken. He's held the gaze of Jesus and he offers this man the same freedom he's been given. He's got an oxygen mask and he offers the man the same oxygen mask. It's the calm in the storm. It's the peace under fire. It's okay when everyone else is not okay. The gospel of Jesus is not the shame triad. The gospel of Jesus is running towards him to acknowledge our sin, our brokenness, and our failure and being okay in the journey. You hear me? Let's pray. Father, I believe with everything in me that if we as individuals can experience the life of Christ, not only healing us physically, which you will do at points, but if we can experience the joyful eyes of Jesus in our greatest moments of sin and failure and agony, as Jesus holds our space and welcomes us into life, Lord, I believe that if we can be a church like that, that we will be a church that breaks this addiction to the shame triad, that breaks the guilt and the performance and welcomes people into the person of Jesus. Father, I pray for marriages this morning. I pray for marriages that are stuck in defensiveness and anxiety and accusation. Lord, I pray for people who immediately jump into being defensive and anxious instead of holding space. And Father, I pray that you would allow us as a church, like Peter gazed back at Jesus, like the broken man gazed back in Peter, that you would allow us to be a church that invites people into greater depth, wholeness, transparency, authenticity, and really loves us through our weakness and brokenness into the life of Christ. Father, I pray that there would be some relationships in this room restored. I pray there'd be some relationships with siblings, perhaps even adult siblings, brothers and sisters. I pray there'd be some spouse relationships that are restored. 
I pray there'd be some relationships with kids that are restored. Lord, I pray that you at this church, at this time, would call us into deeper, more full relationship with you and the ones we love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up. If you need special prayer, we would love to pray with you. As you go today, though, hear me a second. As you go, go knowing that you can experience this life in freedom and you can call everyone around you to experience that same life in freedom. If you need special prayer, come on up here. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I would love to pray with you. I'm going to be right here. Go in Jesus, experiencing the life of Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.